welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, friends. <laughs> yeah, say that back to me. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Jenna, if we haven't met. I am the associate pastor here at Awaken. Uh, thank you. I wonder how long we're going to cheer. <laughs> I just was hired 8-1, so I guess it's still new. <laughs> um, well, welcome to you if you are visiting this morning. Um, Micah and the family have been out for the last couple weeks traveling around the country, hopefully resting uh, as much as you can rest when you're taking your family camping, right? Um, yeah, but it's been great. They'll be back next week, uh, and we'll be... Uh, talking about human sexuality in the series that we've been in. Uh, For the last couple months, we have been in a Lost in Translation series. And kind of the idea behind that is we are looking at more difficult passages uh, in the Bible that we don't always have context for. So week one, we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, gender roles, all sorts of stuff, really light topics. Um, But the idea is really that What happens here on a Sunday morning is very limited. Like, I'm going to talk at you for 30 minutes. But the truth is, and the hope of this series, is that you take what happens here outside, and you have conversations with people, and you ask questions. Um, And really, it's just been a a fun, life-giving series, I think, that we've been in. Uh, How we approached wanting to, like, choose what we talk about is we asked all of you, Um, So you wrote down all sorts of lists, and when Micah knew that he would be gone, he asked me to preach, and he sent me everything that you had sent, and also gave me the option to do a bit of a one-off, where I choose what I want to do. So just to make sure we're, like, covering all of our bases, I did a little research to make sure we did that, and by research, I mean I googled worst Bible passages. And it was a very interesting find. Um, And actually, honestly, kind of healthy. Like, I would encourage all of you to do that, just to see, like, how do people see Christians? And um, without fail, on every single website, there was one passage that showed up over and over and over again. And the language that was around it was like, how can these people think that their God is loving? These people are as sick as their God. Whoa. And so the passage is Psalm 137. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes their heads on the rocks. What do you do with that? I mean, who even thinks that, let alone says it? let alone puts it in a holy text that people seem to think reveal the nature and character of God. What do we do with that? And it was so interesting to be sitting with these words for the last month or so. And to be very honest, as I sat with it, Psalm 137 has actually become one of my favorites. And so this morning, we're going to read the passage. We're going to pray. We're going to talk about the Psalms, and then we are going to talk about anger. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Psalm 137. Um, It might be on the bulletins, too, if you would like. Um, Stand, if you are able, for the reading of the word. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Pray with me. God, for words that might arrest us a little bit, that you would breathe life into something that maybe feels like is lifeless. God, may we know that you see us, that you want all of who we are. And so I ask God, in this moment this morning, if it's the only moment this week that we can believe that, that you would invite us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. So the Psalms are quite interesting. I personally would say I have quite a fond relationship with the Psalms. When I was in sixth grade, I was baptized, and I got a gift from my parents, because apparently you get presents when you make a faith declaration. And I got the Stephen Curtis Chapman album, Dive, Anyone? Yeah. Um, And then I got my first Bible. And I remember being like, okay, now that I'm a serious Christian, I'm going to read it every day. And honestly, it probably didn't last that long. But where I started was the Psalms. And even though there were some sort of weird things that I would encounter in the Psalms, for the most part, there was this different accessibility that was there. And it breeded this first encounter with scripture for me. And I think that is because the Psalms are poetry. And so if you read the Psalms, what you will notice is their strong repetition and pattern and parallelism, strong imagery. The Psalms tend to be very emotive. So like you'll see praise and thanksgiving and then lament and anger and doubt. And I would say, in some ways, they articulate the life of faith because the Psalms are the words of the people to God. And in turn, because we hold these words in our hands, they are God's word to the people. So there's this beautiful reciprocal uh, relationship that the Psalms have to us. Uh, Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite theologians. You probably don't know him because most people think theology is boring, but I don't. Um, He's done a lot of work on the Psalms, and he says something beautiful about the accessibility of the Psalms that I just want to share with you this morning. 
The Psalms permit the faithful to enter at whatever level they are able. In ways primitive or sophisticated, limited or comprehensive, candid or guarded. The faithful of all sorts and conditions with varying skills and sensitivities here find the bread of life as abiding nourishment. And I think that is just such a beautiful way to say it. And I think my 12-year-old self saw that and knew that. And so Psalm 137, I wouldn't necessarily call the bread of life, right? It's a little dark for the bread of life. But Psalm 137 is quite unique. Um, not necessarily unique in, in its intensity, but instead in that it gives us context. So what you will notice if you read the Psalms is they seem to be very general. But what Psalm 137 opens with is a reference to the Babylonian exile. So the Babylonian exile was when Babylon took many Israelites captive, left, making them leave their land and bringing them to Babylon. People, most people think it started in 597 and unofficially ended in 586. And what happened in 586 is crucial. It was the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And so for an Israelite, I cannot stress enough how important place is. Because the reality about the temple and the city is that this is God's space, set apart and holy. The temple is the dwelling place of God. The temple is where the Israelites encounter God. And so imagine being taken from that place when this is your understanding of who God is and you are in a foreign land. And then all that God represents is destroyed. And you are in a foreign land where you don't have a name, you don't have an identity, and it begs the question, where is God? If the place that he lived is gone, and so the Israelites are a displaced people without identity, wondering if God is still with them. And so that is what the psalm expresses here. Despair, humiliation, grief, anger, feelings of vengeance, a deep desire for revenge, and even faith. And so the psalm is broken up into three different parts. Uh, verses 1 through 3 begins with Israel's lament. And they're asked these questions by their tormentors, saying, sing the songs of Zion. And that was a way to humiliate. It was a way to strip the Israelites of their dignity, to remind them that they're helpless because it implies, where is your God? And so in verse 3, the Israelites Lament, how can we sing the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? They're naming this disconnect between who they understand themselves to be and their reality. And then in verses 5 to 6, it actually has a quite different tone. It's a tone of faith. It's a tone of identity and remembrance. 
saying that even though we are in this place, even though our enemies have robbed us of everything that makes us who we are, what they can't take is our memory. And so we remember who you are, God. We remember that even though Jerusalem is destroyed, you are still the God of Jerusalem. They remember. And so all of this anguish and all of this courage in this psalm brings us to this declaration for vengeance at the end that everything we have experienced in exile, might our enemies know that? Might they be robbed of their identities? And this imagery of infanticide that we see here, keep in mind, this is ancient Near Eastern war tactics. Uh, I was talking with John Mark, sorry to put you on blast here, friend, <laughs> uh, earlier this week, and he made this beautiful statement, and I just don't want to say super deep things and not give credit. <laughs> um, but he said, a lot of times, we think that something exists because the Bible exists. So like this really ugly thing that, that's being wished upon enemies, we think all, like God is saying it, but the truth is, the Israelites have seen that. That's just happened to them. And they wish it upon their enemies. And so it's this, this fascinating um, picture of that. And I would say, even with an explanation, even with some context, it maybe still feels uncomfortable. Another friend of mine, obviously I talked to a lot of people about this morning, um, she told me, but it's still so violent. It makes us uncomfortable. And I wonder if there is a different way we might understand these words. I have a feeling that some of you in this room have been through some stuff. Maybe you know what it feels like to be so utterly wronged your breath is taken away. Maybe you know what it feels like for injustice to enter your world. Maybe you know what abandonment does to a worldview. Maybe you know what it feels like to be stripped of your identity in a, in a way that is not okay. Because you see when you've suffered and when you've seen some things and have to experience some things, Feelings of vengeance, anger, is not hard to come by. And this is where the psalm leads us this morning, to a deep, powerful well of ugly, of vengeance. It names human grief and this reality. And what's fascinating is that the implication is not that we would take action on that. The Psalter is not saying that, like, go find some babies. He's not. This is a prayer. It's a prayer. You are bringing all that is in you. Your rage, your anger, you name it. And you are placing it before God. It's a prayer. And so this morning, I want to ask this question. 
What place does anger have in the life of faith? What does it mean to actually name what is real about your reality, about the realities of others? I was in a class earlier this year, and this psalm actually came up. Um, one of my classmates asked this question, um, so how do we apply Psalm 137, right? Um, with the understanding that, that here's what we like to do. We like to look at Psalm 139, for example, where it says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Man, it's beautiful. And so we like to pluck it out of context. We like to write it on a note card and then put it on our mirrors for when we get ready in the morning. And we internalize it and we feel good and we're ready to take the day. That's a great thing. But the question is, it seems like you can't apply that method to this. Because if I came over to your house and I saw that verse on your mirror, I would wonder and I would probably leave. <laughs> and so we began to have this conversation, what do you do with Psalm 137? So we started to talk about things like anger and grief and lament, these powerful human emotions that seem to be driving um, these psalms, and they're called the imprecatory psalms, the ones that are really mean, but it's this deep well of human emotion that's driving it. These are powerful things, things that, that, that can crush you and alter your identity. Grief that makes a mother abandon her child. Anger that makes you kill someone. And not to justify those things, but to acknowledge the power that all of a sudden you might find yourself doing something you never thought you were capable of. And so my professor, and to be clear, I, I, I deeply respect this man. He's very smart. But he began to lead us in a conversation about verbal purity. And what he meant by that was how important it is that our words and our language are clean before God. And so when we bring our grief and anger as people of God into the presence of God, never forget that you are talking to God. And he was encouraging us as future ministry leaders to make sure the people we walk alongside don't tow this line. When does grief and anger turn into sin, is the question that we were answering as a class. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you're in a room and you're trying to like catch eyes with someone, wondering if anyone else feels like, this is crap. Are we seriously having this conversation right now? Because the truth is, is that we have sidestepped the point. You have not answered the question. You are ignoring the Bible, and the Bible is your job. And we're paying for it. I was obviously very triggered in that moment. And then, as I left and went about my day, I had this very brief moment of humility because I realized, oh, Maybe no one ever taught you that you were allowed to be angry in front of God. 
Maybe no one ever taught you that you're actually allowed to be angry at God. That grief, vengeance, depression, anger, rage, you name it, that has a place in God. God is not deterred by those things. If you can't be that way in front of God, who else is there? Who else is there that can give you that kind of safety? It was a moment that shut me up a bit because I realized that there's pain and fear there. So as we talk about anger this morning, I want to address something. Um, So Jesus, what about when Jesus says, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. What about in the Old Testament where Paul talks about rage and anger and all sorts of that stuff and he calls it sin? What about how like the fruits of the Spirit is self-control? And it seems like you're saying, hey, anger's cool, go crazy. Friends, I want to clarify what I am saying and what I am not saying. What I'm not saying is that your road rage, and by yours, I mean mine, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying that your short fuse with your spouse is cool. Like, keep doing that. I'm not saying that Jesus, when he said, love your enemies, it was more a suggestion. Uh, He said a lot of stuff, so like, if, if it's convenient for you, you could do it if you want. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that in lament, an element of lament, when we are encountering anger and grief and all of those things, God gets to have that. God gets to take that. The act of lament and the feelings of vengeance that we experience in that act, it's actually an act of faith because you are entrusting your anger and your rage and things that you never thought belonged in God to God. You are putting them in just hands. I would say it is the first step in loving your enemy. Because here's the deal. In order to love your enemy, you actually have to acknowledge that they're your enemy. Right? You actually have to name it. And in that process, I will put money on. You might feel angry. You might be feeling some things that you don't feel like belong in front of God. As Walter Brueggemann once again says, these imprecatory psalms or these psalms that are so mean, what's happening here is that we are naming and articulating the hurt and the pain. And in doing that, we are submitting them to God. And after we submit them to God, they are then relinquished to God. And friends, I would say this is actually the first step in a healthy pursuit of justice. And so if we're going to acknowledge that justice is a part of this conversation, and when I say justice, I simply mean 
when something wrong is made right and we pursue that together. I want to make a brief comment here. Because what we are engaging in this morning is something very specific, something that I would say is this step one, when we name and articulate and lament and bring these things to God. But it can be very common for a church to start here and stop here, right? That we come forward and we feel a lot of things and now God has it and we're going to have a great week. But friends, this is only the beginning. Because the reality is when you begin to entrust the things that make you angry, the things that hurt you, at some point, if God is who I think he is, he will invite you to move out of that place. He will invite you to do something. He will invite you to act. And so I just want to say that this morning, and, and, and the difference is that when you get to that place of action, your feelings of vengeance have been submitted and are underneath a power that can do so much more than you will ever be able to do. And so I just want to say that this morning because I think it's important to acknowledge it. What I want you to hear this morning is that God is big enough to absorb your anger. God is big enough to hold your hurt. God is at work in your pain, even though you feel abandoned. And everything in you and around you points to that reality. You are not abandoned. And so might you, this morning, bring what you are carrying. Open up a place in your heart you maybe thought God would never want to go. Might you bring that? And for those of you this morning who are maybe not in that place, um, who are not grieving, who are not angry, um, the point is not to ask you to dig deep, friends. <laughs> Get mad. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> I promise. Um, but I wonder if maybe this morning what you could bring to God is someone else's grief, anger, lament. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member who just can't see past their reality. Maybe the little boy, Amrin, from Aleppo, who flooded our screens this week or any other people who have lost their lives in civil war. Maybe you would bring those who are still grieving the losses of Philando Castile, the Dallas police officers, Alton Sterling, Trayvon Martin. Do I need to keep going? Or what about the ones whose names we don't know, people who have died in the wake of injustice? Because, friends, the people that knew them are not done grieving. And might God hear their pain? Might God hold their anger? And might we, as people of faith, stand in the gap this morning? As we transition to this next part of the service, um, I'd like to invite John Mark and the band forward. You were given a rock.
and that was intentional. Uh, if you don't have one, there are extras at each of the doors. But what we hope to do this morning is to engage in corporate lament together. We want to give you an opportunity to name and identify what is real, and as a symbol, to come forward and to place the weight of that thing before God. And the truth is, friends, this might not serve to alleviate that thing. It might not go away once you leave these doors. But what we want to say is that God is with you. There is room and capacity in God so that you don't need to carry those things alone. Permission to name those things. And so what we'll do is, is enter into a time of silence where you'll be given an opportunity to, to listen for what God might be inviting you into this morning. Um, and then we'll have a time of response and I'll uh, come up and let you know what that will look like. Um, pray with me, friends. God, thank you that you hold the things that we bring. Even if we never thought we were allowed to, I ask that you would give us permission to do that, maybe for the first time. Thank you that you see us and that you want what is good. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, as we enter into this next part of the service, um, we'll play three songs, and we would invite you to respond uh, in whatever way you feel comfortable, whether that's standing, sitting, kneeling. During that time, you will be able to come forward and place the weight of what you hold in front of God. Our prayer team will be available, um, so we invite you to come. Friends, the weight of all of this is in the hands of God. Know that you don't need to clean up before you come. You are welcome. You belong in everything that you bring. I recognize this might have stirred some things up in you. And I would invite you to talk to people that you trust. If you don't have anyone that you trust, that's what I'm for. Jenna at awakencommunity.com. Friends, thank you for being vulnerable with us this morning. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.